0: If you're new with us today, uh, like Adam said earlier, you received a yellow Connect card in your program and you just slip that in the offering bag as it goes by later. Uh, We won't hound you, we'll just send you one email to connect and and that's it. So um, before we get started with the sermon, before we jump in, I want to just take time to to pray for Tim and Shirley. Um, Tim and Shirley were here this morning and her grandfather got rushed off to the hospital. So they had to leave, uh, just an emergency situation. So uh, let's just just bow with me in prayer and and we'll lift them up to our Lord Jesus. Uh, Father, thank you for um, your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for uh, everything that you are. And we pray that that, uh, your goodness would just uh, be showered on Tim and Shirley and uh, the Chow family as... Uh, a father, a grandfather, a husband, a friend uh, is in the hospital right now. And we don't know the situation, but we know that you do. And he is in your hands. And uh, I pray that uh, their family would rally around uh, just dependence and trust in who you are and in your goodness. Um, So Father, um, I pray that the situation, whatever it is, uh, that uh, you would give wisdom to the hospital and the doctors in the situation, that you would bring healing uh, if and where it's needed, and um, again, your goodness and your glory would shine through this situation. Uh, we just ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Um, so I'll give you i mean, any updates on them uh, if, if we get them. Uh, also, for those of you guys who don't know, Archie and Cindy and their family uh For those of you guys who don 't know her father cindy 's father two and a half weeks ago committed suicide and um, and they were about to leave for six weeks on a missions trip and uh, they delayed the trip they um, they 've been ministering to their family it's been awesome um, i 'm in mean, there. Uh, God has been all over this situation in their family and they were able to leave this past was it Wednesday Um, to go on the trip so they'll be on the trip for the next four weeks Uh, so let's keep on praying for them and praying with them on that trip Uh, also Stephen DeKuyper for those of you guys who don't know he's in South Africa on mission uh, which is really awesome so keep on praying for him I think he'll be there for the next week uh, keep him in your prayers and in your thoughts. Uh, and then there's one more. Am I forgetting? I feel like I'm forgetting somebody. Sorry if I forgot you <laughs> and you're on mission. <laughs> um, but uh, also, I mean, also with Archie and Cindy, there's one, two, three, four, five of our students are with uh, with them as well from U of T and Ryerson. So that's really awesome. They have a chance to be with him, pour into their lives and... Um, and just show Jesus in the country they're in. All right. So we are in our rethink series and for those of you guys who have been with us through the series, we're going through 1 Corinthians and we're dealing with different topics each topics each week because that's really what Paul does throughout the series. Is he talks about different topics or this letter, I should say. He talks about different topics. And we've talked about sex in the past month or so, sex, marriage, Singleness. Uh, today we're talking about commitment. We've done other, other topics, and we're what we're trying to do each week is we want we want to help us because Paul's doing this in the early church. He's trying to help us rethink these topics because we brought in some. You have some cultural norm. You have some even maybe even church culture that we want to deconstruct in you and put what is biblical in you. And so when we talked about sex, for instance, we talked about how it's not just a physical act, but it's actually a spiritual act. And that may have deconstructed some cultural things in you and put in actually what's biblical truth in you. And so we've done that in each, dif- in each topic. And, and to do it in a prophetic way that, that shapes our community to be a light uh, in our city and to really usher in kingdom culture in our city. So today, commitment, um, if you're reading through this passage, well, Michelle just read through it, it seems a little weird um, because he's talking about divorce, singleness, remarriage, marriage, sex, and then he has this little aside, verses 17 through 24, and then he comes back to family and marriage. And, and what he's trying to get, us to get to there is commitment, and that's why we're going to talk about that today. So... Let's talk about commitment. The millennial generation is notoriously uh, known for their lack of commitment. I'm not going to bash you if you're a millennial today. You may not even know you're a millennial, but it's, it's basically... And that's, that probably says more about you as a millennial than, than anything. But uh, it's basically... Well, I won't go in the generations, but you, you know you know what it is. But we're not going to bash millennials because actually most of us have issues with commitment. Most of us uh, have issues with and I, I look at it as a spectrum. There's a spectrum of commitment. So here, here's some questions to help you maybe discern where you're on that spectrum. Uh, how many, think about how many jobs you've had. That may help you. Uh, think about um, how many relationships you've been in. How many boyfriends or girlfriends you've had. How many marriages you've had. Um, and Zero says something about you as much as 50. Hopefully you haven't had 50, that's crazy. Uh, as, as much as 50 says something about you. Uh, and, and so maybe that'll help you gauge. Um, how long does it take you to decide what to eat when you go to a restaurant? How many of you guys take forever to look at the menu? And then, once you decide, do you have some cognitive dissonance? Are you like, oh, I should have gotten that. Yeah, oh, that looks better. What he has looks way better. We were at a restaurant yesterday with the girls, and Emerson got what she wanted, Reagan got what she wanted, Missy and I got what we wanted, and the whole time, Emerson, my six-year-old, soon to be seven, she'll be seven tomorrow, um, she, she's, yeah, she's looking at all of our meals, and she's like, that looks good, Daddy. She's like, that looks really good. And then she looks at Missy's, and she's like, that looks awesome can I have some of that? And I'm just like, eat your own food. (laughs) You got what you wanted. Take that cognitive dissonance out. Uh, A lot of us are like that though. Um, And this says something about us in terms of commitment. Okay? So, I'm going to give you seven reasons why, and I got most of these from a blog, seven reasons why you're afraid of commitment. And number one is, you feel vulnerable. I would... I'm not going to ask how many of you guys feel like this, but you have, you've put yourself, if you make a commitment, you've put yourself into a position where you feel like you're at the mercy of somebody else or something else, right? You've committed and now you're at their mercy, job, relationship, whatever it looks like. And you feel like you've relinquished some control, in a sense. So you feel vulnerable. uh, And that's why you're afraid of commitment. Whereas the reality is you probably never had that control in the first place. Uh, Number two, you don't want to miss out on something better. This is the food dilemma. Oh, why did I get that on the menu? This is Emerson saying, oh, that that looks way better. Problem is, because of your fear of missing out on something better, you're actually missing out on what's happening right in front of you right now. Because you're waiting and you're holding out for something that is maybe possibly going to come sometime in the future maybe possibly and you're missing out what is actually concrete in front of you right now a lot of our suffering in life is there because we can't see what God's actually given us in our hands right now we're thinking he should be giving us this we're waiting for him to give us this but he's saying I've given you this and we just can't see it, we're blind to it because we don't want to miss out on something better number three and four, five, and six. too. yeah. <laughs> number three. <laughs> oh, back to one. Back to oh. All right, let's sing. Back to <laughs> Troy. You gotta lead us. I'm not gonna lead us in singing. All right, here we go. You have number three. You have unrealistic expectations. Your expectations aren't just for perfection. They're actually unattainable. Your expectations are so high that nobody can attain them, and you always find something wrong with everything. You can find something wrong with everything. And that's why you don't commit. Because you're like, uh, he's not good enough because his hair goes this way and not that way. Um, she's not good enough because she's half an inch too short. This job isn't good enough because it pays me $1,000 less than I want. Whatever it is, you can find something wrong with everything because you have unrealistic expectations. So you're afraid to commit. Number four, you feel like you have plenty of time to make a decision. You're like, yeah, I'm in my 20s. I, I don't have to make a decision now. Um, oh, I'm in my 30s. I don't have to make it. De- Next thing you know, you're in your 50s and you haven't made that decision. You feel like you have plenty of time. But all the while, time is just going by and you're still stagnant because you haven't made a decision. Number, four, number five, you don't want to feel trapped. Here's the thing, though. Picture commitment like this. You have two open fields and a fence. And you're straddling the fence. Maybe you're not st- and maybe you're not straddling it. Maybe you don't have one foot in and one foot out. Maybe you're two feet into this, but you can't let go of the fence. Okay? So you're, tra- you're, you're trapping yourself because you haven't made a commitment to be in this field. Because you're like, well, I want to stay here because what if that field starts getting more animals? Or what if it's the grass starts getting better? And you, so you want to be able to hop the fence back into that. Um, and that fear of not feeling trapped is actually a self-imposed fear because you're just on the fence. And you're not able to, free, to be free in this field or roam this field because you're stuck here on the fence. Number six, you fear the past is going to repeat itself. Here's the thing about the past. If you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus redeems your past. And he uses your past for his glory in the future. So your past doesn't have to control you. You don't have to let it control you. So you don't have to fear repeating itself because Jesus wants to use it and redeem it because you're a new creation in Christ. Uh, number seven, last one. You're too busy. You don't have to raise your hand. Anyone ever say that? All of your hands should go up. This is the lamest, most ridiculous excuse you can give for being afraid of commitment or for anything for that matter, that you're too busy. Everybody's busy. Everybody's busy. Okay. You know, what's funny is a lot of times I hear people say that who don't have kids. Now, I see Simon laughing back there because we've talked about this. Like, throw kids into that mix and now imagine your life managing other, someone else's life and imagine how, how, you can do, how you can do things. I thought when I didn't have kids, I didn't have any time. Now I'm like, what did I do with my time when we didn't have kids? Like, I don't even remember what it was like. Um... Uh, but everyone has the same amount of time and it's not about busyness and about what you have on your schedule or the things that you're involved in it's about priorities it's about how you prioritize it's about time management um, and you can, you can work that out so uh, for those of you who are pregnant right now and going to have kids I see Tiffany back there don't be scared she's like oh my gosh <laughs> I'm going to have a baby in like a month what am I going to do no you'll, you work it out you figure it out so here's the thing With Christianity, it involves commitment. Being a follower of Jesus involves full commitment. If you have issues with commitment, if you're afraid of commitment, then you're going to have issues with Christ. And these fears you're going to take and you're going to import them onto your faith, onto Christ, onto your journey, onto Christianity. So if you feel that way in, in commitment, you're going to feel that, you're gonna, if you're too busy in your life, you're going to be too busy for Jesus. If you feel vulnerable, you're going to feel vulnerable in your faith. If you have unrealistic expectations and in, in commitment in general, you're going to import those into your faith. And you're going to tr- just transfer those fears. Because guess what, guys? Jesus, when he says, follow me, he means all of you. He's very authoritarian in that respect. It's either yes or it's no. It's either follow me or don't follow me. There's no in-between there with Jesus. And so these fears, if you have these in commitment, like I said, you're going to have them in your Christianity. And that leads us to the bottom line for today. And this is what I want to take throughout the entire sermon for today, that a life full of commitment leads to a life full of contentment. Okay, so we're going to start there and we're going to tease that out throughout the sermon. That a life full of commitment leads to a life full of com- contentment. Okay, so let's take a look at this passage. Beginning in verse, so this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We, we talked about singleness last week and we're going into commitment today. And he, sa- he starts off with two verses that talk to married people. And here... There's two sections in these, in these next few verses. One, he's talking to married believers. So a, a, two followers of Jesus. The husband and the wife are both followers of Jesus. In the next set of verses, he's going to talk about a believer who's married to an unbeliever. Okay, So we'll get to that in a second. But to the married, he says, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. And when he says, not I but the Lord, he's saying... Jesus has an explicit statement on this. Jesus has explicitly taught on this. We, I've heard Jesus say this. Uh, we can trace this in the Gospels, for instance. Um, and that's what he says there in parentheses. And he says the wife shouldn't separate from her husband. What he means there is not, when you, when you hear separate, don't think like legal separation, how we have it today. He's talking about divorce there. And in his day, they didn't, they didn't have those categories. It was just... Married or divorced. We see that uh, all through this passage here, that he has these two categories. So there he's talking about divorce. So the wife shouldn't separate from her husband. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled. We'll come back to that a little later in the sermon. The husband should not divorce his wife. So he talks about the wife and says, she shouldn't do this. And he says to the husband, he shouldn't do this. Pretty straightforward, right? Um, I mean, that's, that's his charge to... Uh, married couples there who are believers they're both believers and he says divorce should not happen among people who are both believers why is that? it's because like I said a few weeks ago the sanctity of marriage reflects the sanctity of the gospel it's this profound mystery that Paul talks about that, that is about Christ and the church. And so Paul is saying, this shouldn't happen among believers. They should be able to work through differences. Differences should not be irreconcilable. And that's all he says to believers, that you shouldn't do that. Now, let's go to the next passage. He says, this is uh, the next five verses, I believe. He says, to the rest, he says, I, not the Lord, say this. So there is isn't an explicit statement from Jesus on this, but Paul is speaking with authority here and he says, I say this to the rest of you guys, because what's happened here is they're a new church, they've experienced the gospel for the first time, there's been married couples, and one has become a believer and the other one hasn't. And now the question is, what do we do, what do we do, Paul? Um, remember when you, were, when you came to faith. If you're a follower of Jesus in here this morning, when you came to faith, you experienced joy. like Joy like you'd never known before for the first time. You experienced full forgiveness for the first time. You experienced peace and your new creation in Christ. And uh, you experienced this undying love, this, this unadulterated, pure love from the Father for the first time. So you probably wanted to change everything in your life. Right, you're just like I'm not doing that anymore. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna live full on for Jesus. Um, a lot of us, when we became believers, we just read through the entire Bible for the first time, and we just eating everything up. And that's what's happening here in the church. Like they, one has become a believer in this in a marriage, and the other one hasn't. And they're like, Paul, what do what do we do here? I want to change everything in my life. And Paul says this to them. He says, if Any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him. Basically, she is pleased to dwell with him. They're pleased to dwell together is what that could literally be translated as. Uh, He should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And Paul just leaves it at that. He says, he says, Look, it's, if you guys can keep the peace and he talks about peace a little bit later peace is kind of the overarching theme in these verses if you guys can work it out and keep the peace then stay together why is that? why would, why would coming to Christ be changing a lot of things in your life but not change your marital status? well it's because the sanctity of marriage reflects the sanctity of the gospel and Paul is like elevating this for them Verse 14. This is one of the most difficult, weirdest verses in all of Scripture. So let me just read it for you guys. He says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Most of you guys, if you've read that before, you're like, What? Like, what do I do with that? Um, what does that mean? It's not as complicated as, as we think, actually. So, first he says, uh, you're made holy. That, that word there for, for made holy is simply set apart, consecrate. It's what the priests would do when they came into the temple. They would consecrate certain things to the Lord. It's just setting apart. So he says here, uh, and, and so don't hear anything with salvation in there. Okay? So the, the, the believing husband or wife is not making their unbelieving spouse uh, saved in a sense, okay, but there is a sense of this overflow of holiness that happens, okay, um, and that's what he's talking about here. That when you're united, and remember, Paul just talked about this mystery of marriage—that it is a unity of one flesh. Okay, they are—they're together; they're one flesh; they're living in the same house, and. Something has changed in the wife who just became a believer, right? She's been totally transformed. She's an example of prayer now. She, she's living out the gospel. She's just talking about Jesus all the time. She's uh, worshiping with a with community. She is maybe fasting. She's uh, reading Paul's letter in the home. Like who, who knows what's happening? But she is this light that was once in a dark place. And the household is made a sacred place because God's presence is now there in the household. And it's like her holiness spills over on her spouse and vice versa, him if he's the believer to, to her. The whole, her. The outworking of the spirit spills over. So now he, who's an unbeliever, guess what? He's experiencing this love from the spirit that he's never seen before. He's seeing joy in her life that he's never seen before. He's seeing all the fruit and the produce of the Spirit that he's never seen before in their marriage and how she talks to their kids and how she um, works inside or outside the home. Uh, she's seeing all, he's seeing all these things take place in her life. And there's this overflow of holiness onto her. Do you guys ever... Do you have someone in your life that... Uh, when you get around them, you almost become a little bit like them. Like they're, they're so close to you, or you look up to them in some way, like they have a trait that you really value. So when you're with them, you actually, you're actually a little bit like them. Like maybe some of your mannerisms become like them. Or uh, you laugh at the same things, or you laugh like them. Or uh, you do some of the things that they do. Um, I have a, well, a couple examples. My girls, so they're six and five, so they're really close together in age, 15 months apart. And Reagan looks up to Emerson, so my younger one looks up to my older one so much. Uh, she just wants to do everything like her. She wants to be like her. Um, and this was more when they were younger. Now now I see it going both ways, where Emerson values some things in Reagan, and she wants to be like her, and it happens both ways. Um, for me, I have a friend from... Seminary. One of my one of my best friends from seminary. Uh, whenever we're around each other, uh, I don't. It's it's almost seamless. Like I don't know who's acting like who. It's so we we just click so well um, on certain things that I'm like, is he acting like me or am I imitating him? And that's what's happening here. That's what Paul means when he says the wife. Her holiness as she is a new creation in Christ, it's just spilling over. And maybe her husband even begins to imitate some of those things. And Paul ends up saying here that, that uh, well, verse 16 is in light of this. That He says, how do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? So, now think about this in your life. Like let's, let's take it out of the marriage context for a second. Do you make other people holy? Do you have that effect on other people? What effect do you have on other people? Do you make them more like Jesus? Or do you drag them down? Do you make them less like Jesus? Do you um, overflow with love and joy and peace or do you overflow with fear and your anxieties and complaints? With your lust and your gossip and your sin? Or do you overflow with the of the spirit in your life? Like, how are you affecting those around you? And this is a principle not just for marriages, but for all of our relationships. For those that you're around at work, for those that you work with, uh, and, and, and serve within the church, for those in your neighborhood, um. You know how? What are you overflowing into people? And Paul here says there's such a unique dynamic in the marriage where you don't you don't know what can happen. He's saying. He says, but if the unbelieving partner separates in verse 15, he says, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. It's funny there that he puts the word enslaved with marriage. He's like, let the ball and chain go. Uh, like, but. He's just saying, you're, you're, you're free. Like, you can't do anything about it. Like, you, you, you just have to let them go. They're, they're unbelieving. He says, because of this, God has called you to peace. He says, whether you're in a relationship with them in marriage or outside of marriage, God's called you to peace. And that is leading into, you never know. And this, the verse 16 here where he says you don't know if you'll save your husband, wife, or, or the other way. Um, you don't know husband if, yeah, vice versa. Um, what he's saying there uh, can be taken pessimistic, pessimistically or optimistically. But what he's pointing us to is just trust in God. You don't know. So, whatever it is, lead out in peace. Because that is what you have from Jesus and that is what you give in your relationships. So lead out in that. Um, Just want to say a note on marriage here before we go to, because what happens in the next few verses is Paul does this sort of aside. Like I said at the beginning of the sermon, he's talking about divorce, marriage, remarriage, singleness, and then he does this aside from verses 17 through 24, and it's kind of random if you read through that, you're like, what's he talking about? But he emphasizes what commitment looks like and what it means. And then, next week, we'll go back to marriage, well, not marriage, but we'll go back to family and talk about family. And Paul, it's like he inserts this thing right in the middle of this entire chapter on family relationships. So before we get to that, just want to say a couple of theological notes on... Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Because I'm assuming you guys are wondering, what does this mean? Like, does this mean that divorce is prohibited? Does this mean that remarriage is prohibited? Does what does this mean for uh, those who have been deserted? Right. I mean, we we see that there the unbeliever left. Um, What does it mean? And what what we see in this passage is the overarching thrust of the passage. As Paul says it's better not to divorce. You should not do it if there's two believers together because it says something about the gospel. He says, and then he says, it's better not to remarry. So that's the overarching thrust. Now he doesn't prohibit it, but he says it's better not to remarry. And actually, when you go through this passage, this is going to make some of you guys uncomfortable, but it depends. It depends on the situation. This is why Paul goes through different situations. This is why he says, I say this, but not the Lord, because Jesus didn't talk about all the different situations. And so Paul is having to speak through the Spirit in certain situations here. And he's saying, well, it depends. Well, who left who? Did the believer leave? Did the unbeliever leave? Uh, and that depends whether you're, you're remarried or not. Did, did, if both believers separate, what does that mean? Um, and so he, he goes through through all of this, and Jesus gives one exception to for divorce, and Paul gives one exception Paul we just saw desertion, and Jesus in Matthew chapter nineteen, wow, I turned right to it that 's amazing. I just like, uh, I thought I was going to have to talk while I was flipping through, but yeah, awesome so <laughs> In in Matthew 19, Jesus gives one exception here. So he says this. So actually, the Pharisees come to him and they're trying to capture Jesus in a trap. They always try to do this. And they come to Jesus and they say, is it lawful to, to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus says, well haven't you read that from the beginning God created them male and female? And he quotes Genesis 2, 24, and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, this is where Paul is, I mean, Paul repeats this in 1 Corinthians as well. And then he says, So, they're no longer two, but they're one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And Jesus leaves it at that, until they ask him a follow-up question. So, we see there from Jesus his preference, and his preference is that divorce would not happen. And I'm sure if you're sitting in here today, and you're divorced, that would have been your preference, that I wish it didn't work out that way. And that's what God is, that's what his preference is. I wish it wouldn't work out that way. I wish this would have happened. I, I want I wanted it to look like this. Um, and Jesus leaves it there, and he says, yeah, they're one flesh. I wish they wouldn't separate. And then the Pharisees follow up and they say, well, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away then? And Jesus responds, he says, it's because of your hardness of heart. (laughs) He basically says it's because you're sinners. He says, it's because your hearts are hard. He says, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. It wasn't meant to be that way. And then he says, but I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except... For sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So he has one exception there, and it's sexual immorality. And that passage has been interpreted in so many different ways. Um, I did like a whole class in seminary on it, um, and I came out saying I don't know what I I don't know what to believe. Now um, I look at this and it's pretty. It's I mean. You just read the words on the page, it's pretty, it's pretty clear, right? So, except for sexual immorality. And he says, if that's not the case, and they marry again, then it's considered adultery. Because you're still married in this other marriage, and now you've divorced, and you're committing adultery with somebody else. And Jesus, that's what Jesus calls it. So, when Paul talks about it here, again, the overarching thrust of this is, he says, I prefer no remarriage, for a couple of reasons. One, you may, already st- you may still be married, you may already be married and still be married, even though you've divorced, in the eyes of God, you still may be married, um, unless sexual morality or desertion in the case of the believer and the non-believer, okay, um, for desertion. Sexual morality isn't specific, so... I'm assuming it goes for both cases. And, uh, or, or I should say, or, so that, that case, and the other case would be, um, Paul says remarriage is just, it's just better if you want to follow Jesus to not remarry. And Paul says, I wish everyone was like me. But it depends on someone's, stat, on someone's state in life, you know, what we talked about earlier, but also their gifts, Paul says. Some people, they are, they are gifted in celibacy, like Paul. He's like, I'm good. But he says, if you burn with passion, um, yeah, maybe it's better for you to marry. Uh, so Paul goes through all these different situations. And so whereas the overall thrust is Better not to remarry if you're divorced. Uh, he would say, "Well, it depends." And then also, uh, like, yeah, I guess that's that is where Paul would leave it. More well, it depends on the situation. These are the two. These these are those two exceptions: sexual morality and desertion. Now, throughout the scriptures. As, and you see this in Jesus. I mean, he goes back to creation. He says, In the beginning, it wasn't this way. And throughout the scriptures, we have examples of this that, that God would rather have it where your marriage. And Paul says, For the rest of you guys who don't have a specific situation, here are your two options stay unmarried or be reconciled. So if you have two believers who've separated, he says, You either stay unmarried. Or you be reconciled, and some you, some some people are like, "Well, how long do I wait for that?" How and and he says, "Well, you wait until you die. <laughs> right, you just wait for reconciliation to happen, um, or you and or you stay unmarried." Uh, and throughout the scriptures, we see this this played out over and over again. God, now we we can get a picture of why God says in Malachi that He hates divorce. Um, It's not that he hates the person who's been divorced or or, um, or anything like that, but he hates it because it doesn't make the gospel look good. If marriage represents the gospel, and Paul says it does, it's this profound mystery from the ages, then it just doesn't make the gospel look good. But then we have one of the most beautiful stories in all of scripture is the book of Hosea. And... Uh, and it's the story of the prophet Hosea uh, marrying somebody. So God tells Hosea to marry this lady named Gomer. Um, that's <laughs> that was probably a hurdle in itself. He had to marry someone named Gomer. I always think of like the Sesame Street guy, isn't he Gomer? Glover, yeah. <laughs> but see, it's so close. I always think of him. Oh, uh, so some. So Hosea is is supposed to marry Gomer. And, And the Bible says that she's a harlot. But he's supposed to marry her. So he goes and marries her. And they have a pretty good marriage at the beginning. And then she becomes unfaithful. And she goes and she leaves and she sleeps with somebody else. And she comes back. And her and Hosea have already had a child. But she comes back and she's pregnant. And Hosea's like, "That's not my kid." Um, And then he forgives her, and they reconcile, and he raises that kid. He names the kid, and then she leaves him again. And God says, "Accept her back again." And she comes. She comes back, and guess what? She's pregnant again. Not with his child, with someone else's child. And Hosea actually names the child not my people. Um, that's how we know it's not his, not his kid, which that, that kind of sucks for that, that kid. But it's um, <laughs> just like a constant reminder. Uh, but Hosea accepts her back again. And it's forgiveness. And, and you say, well, how long... Do I forgive somebody, God? Peter asks God this, uh, Jesus gets this question, right? And Peter says, well, if I forgive someone seven times, that's pretty good, right, Jesus? And he's like, no, 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 no. Seventy times, seven times. Basically, until you lose count, you forgive. I don't care if it's for the same thing over and over again. And this is what, this is the picture of what Hosea is doing with Gomer. He's forgiving. He's forgiving. And now, it's different if Gomer says, well, I'm out of here. But she never says, I'm out of here. Like, Hosea can't, remember, Hosea can't do anything about that, right? If we're going off what Paul says, he's just got to let it be so. But she keeps on coming back. And he keeps on accepting her back and forgiving her. And he keeps on accepting her back. And then one day, he's raising three kids, two of them aren't his, and she leaves for good. He has no idea where she's gone. She doesn't come back. Let it be so. He can't do anything about it, right? He can't force her to stay married with him. Right? And this is where the believer is like, yeah. I mean, Paul says, you're no longer enslaved. You don't have to worry about that anymore. And, and so Hosea is there, but then God comes to Hosea, and he's like, hey, we found Gomer. I know, <laughs> go get her. And she is actually being sold in the market. And God says, you're supposed to redeem her to show her a picture of my love for Israel. Because just as she's been unfaithful to you, my people have been unfaithful to me. And yet I forgive them over and over again. If they want to come back, I'll always accept them. God says, I'm not going to force them. I'm going to let it be so. I can't force them into a marriage with my son. I can't force them into that. And I don't want to. But if she wants to be redeemed... Hosea, you go redeem her. And he goes and redeems her and shows her God's undying love. And that's actually the last thing we hear. He redeems her. They're married still. And the assumption is that they stay married. We don't hear anything more about the relationship though. Um, and the point isn't to have a happy ever after ending. Because we don't know. It could have gone, she could have been unfaithful again. The point is, God is always there saying, I'm here if you want to come back. So um, that's all I'm going to say on divorce, remarriage, all those things. If you have any more questions on it, you can ask me later. Uh, But in this passage, when the unbeliever leaves, the believer steps back and says, yeah, I can't force you to be in this relationship with me. They're no longer enslaved. And then verse 16 says, well, how do you know? You don't know. Just trust God and let peace reign. So now verses 17 through 24. And this is, this is where Paul talks about a couple different things. And he starts off with this word only in verse 17. And that word can literally be translated as in any event or um, at all event. He says, so in any event, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Commitment. Let each person be committed to the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And Paul repeats that verse, that phrase, that statement, this rule that he says, this guiding principle he says in all the churches. He repeats it in verse 20 and then he repeats it again to end the passage in verse 24. So three times in eight verses he repeats this. Only be committed. In any event, be committed to what God has assigned to you what he's called you and he goes through a few different circumstances here he says jewish or gentile circumcised or uncircumcised and and what he's talking about here is um the those who are jewish are like man we feel oppressed what if we were more like the gentiles and he's like no 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 god has called you in this situation stay in this situation earlier he's talking about male and female right And believer and unbeliever. He says, no, stay in that situation. And what's awesome about the passage previous to this is we see Paul address not just the husband in divorce, but also the wife. Not just the husband in marriage, but also the wife. And this is a unique trait of the church that we have ontologically in being made male and female equal. Jesus does that. Whereas in society up to that point, I mean, it wasn't that way it wasn 't a level thing, and so paul 's addressing both here it 's not just on the husband and it 's not just on the wife it 's on both of them and so that 's kind of coming into this passage and there 's almost like a seed form of the prosperity gospel in here in the Corinthian church where they feel like they 've come to Jesus, and there should have been this upward mobility. Jesus came to give us the abundant life right where we serve a God of infinite resources, right we should have money, we should have power like. This is the kingdom, right? It's, it's all about power, right? And Paul's like, wait, wait, wait. He's like, no, 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 no. Let's snuff that prosperity gospel out and say, where, wherever God has assigned you, you're to live in that, commit to that, and live it in contentment. Live it in contentment. And then he deals with those who are slaves or servants and those who are free. And he says the same thing. He says, just because you're free in Jesus does not mean you're going to necessarily be free in life. And when he talks about, here when he talks about um, slavery and servitude, it's more indentured servitude, so it's different from how we think of it today. But in in the same way, he's like, that's not necessarily the case. But he does say, if you have a chance, if the opportunity arises, take it. He says, avail yourself of it. Yeah, it's like, yeah, be free. But your commitment to christ is gonna overpower any life situation and you might be saying in here this morning i committed to my marriage i committed to that job i committed to my friends i committed to that relationship and it fell apart so what you're saying about commitment that if you have a life full of commitment it's going to lead to a life full of commitment or contentment that's wrong you may be saying no that that's not true i don't believe that that's totally wrong Let me qualify it. Because it's not just a life full of random commitment. It's a life full of commitment to Christ. And it's not just a life full of random contentment. It's a life full of contentment in Christ. And your issue also may be you don't know the definition of contentment. Contentment isn't happiness contentment isn't even satisfaction it's not fulfillment so you might have been looking for fulfillment in that marriage and it was never going to fulfill you because it was never designed to fulfill you you're designed to be fulfilled in Christ not in marriage if you're going into your marriage and you think you're going to be fulfilled by that person you're going to be sorely disappointed it was never meant for that your job was never meant to fulfill you It was never meant to satisfy you. Only Christ was meant to do that in your life. Contentment is this. It's not letting your circumstances, your situation, your life stage, your experiences control you and conquer you. It's you controlling and conquering Your life situation, your experiences, your circumstances. And this is why Paul in Philippians chapter 4, when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which is in the context of contentment, Paul says, I'm content. Therefore, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he says, I can be content in hunger because hunger does not control me. I have power over that in the Lord Jesus. I can be content in need because I have power over that in Christ. I can be content in abundance, he says, because abundance doesn't control me either. I have power over that in Christ Jesus because he has conquered that on my behalf. And so true contentment and this bottom line that we've been talking about is if you have a life full of commitment to Christ you will have a life full of contentment in Christ. And that should be the lens and filter for everything else, all your life situation, all your, all your circumstances, your past, your present, your future. Now this lens of Christ gives you a new perspective. And that's what's being redeemed here. It's not that God takes you out of your present situation and puts you in a better one. That's temporary. He's in the business of changing and transforming your heart perspective. That's what he cares about. Devotion to him. So this morning, your faith, your issues of commitment, what are you bringing into your journey with Christ are you bringing in one of those seven fears or all of those fears or some of those fears what does it look like for you to commit to a relationship you're in right now what does it look like for you to commit to the job you're in to say God you've given me this job I'm thankful for it I'm going to press into this all that I am right now be present in it and if you want to give me something better I'm just going to wait on you but in the meantime waiting is not going to be stagnant I'm going to do something for you and be a light for you right now where I'm at. You know, some of you guys have been around Trinity Life for for a while and you're straddling the fence. And you're never going to experience the fullness of what God wants you to experience in this community if you're straddling the fence. If your experience is just Sunday morning, you're straddling the fence. If you're not involved in a body life group throughout the week, you're straddling the fence. If you don't serve with us throughout the city, you're straddling the fence. You haven't fully committed. And you're holding on to that fence for whatever reason, and God's saying, fully commit. If you're trying to figure out Jesus right now, all he wants is a yes or a no from you. Yeah, you you should explore, and you should ask your questions, and you should, you should, um, seek out answers and and those things but when jesus talks to the disciples and he says come follow me they just say yes or no and then they figure everything out jesus says just come to me first say yes or no and then we'll figure things out together you don't need to hold on to that fence anymore you don't need to feel trapped anymore you don't need to feel vulnerable anymore because you can have freedom in Jesus. And so, if that's you this morning, we invite you to make a decision for Christ this morning. Because you're never going to experience the fullness of Christ if you're just straddling the fence. And that goes for any commitment in your life. But all your commitments in your life are going to fall short if you aren't finding your con- contentment and full commitment in Christ. So, if you've been a Christian for a while this morning, if you consider yourself a father of Jesus, that's for you too. Maybe you've been holding onto the fence and holding on to something. He wants you off of that and into his presence fully. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that the truth is we were bought with a price. And that means that we have a new master. It's so amazing that phrase in the scriptures is is you purchasing us from the master of darkness and putting us into the master of light. It's us no longer being a servant to Satan and the world. It's us being a servant to the king, to the king of kings. And we praise you for that reality that Jesus, we are your possession, that you have bought us and we are your possession. And because of that, your holiness is our holiness. And our holiness can spill out onto other people because it's yours. And all the things that you've given us, we get to give to this world. So thank you for that truth. Thank you for that reality. Thank you for the gospel that is you giving yourself up for us willingly that we would be redeemed and bought at a price to be your servants so I pray that this morning uh, you just show us what that looks like in terms of commitment for each of us whether it's to this to church, to you, to job to relationships Father pray that instead of feeling vulnerable we'd feel bold bless us with boldness this morning with sound mind with discipline because that spirit of timidity is not of you. So thank you, Jesus, you've given us those things. We just live out in those today, the rest of this service too. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.